Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In recent years, there has been an explosion in literature, podcasts, TV programs and films about true crime. This gripping, albeit tragic, genre has its own hashtag – Popular streaming services enjoy millions of followers for their true crime outputs. But the notion of crime causing a media sensation is nothing new. In fact, if you travelled back 400 years or so to Stuart Britain, to the years following 1615, and picked up a broadside, much like a newspaper, or perhaps a printed play or a poem, you would find the sensational true crime story of the death of Thomas Overbury. A courtier in the reign of King James I Thomas Overbury was a lawyer, poet and essayist who died in the Tower of London in 1613. As the circumstances surrounding his death began to circulate, they caused a sensation, leading to a scandal that rocked the monarchy to its core. Think of the Ferrari surrounding the British royal family in recent times when its members have been accused of misdemeanours and you'll have a small sense of the shock that Overbury's death, alleged to be a murder, caused. So. What do we know today about the death of Thomas Overbury? If he was murdered, was anybody ever held to account? And why did his death threaten the monarchy? To help us embark on a Not Just the Tudors true crime episode, I'm delighted to welcome Alistair Bellany, Professor of History at Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences in New Jersey in the USA. Professor Bellany specialises in the political culture of early modern England and is the author of The Murder of King James I and The Politics of Court Scandal in Early Modern England, News Culture and the Overbury Affair, 1603 to 1660, which he will discuss today. Professor Bellany, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Delighted to be here. Now, we are, of course, going to discuss the political significance of Thomas Overbury's death in our conversation today. And I hope we'll talk about how it was represented in contemporary literature. But could we start by establishing some of the sort of key facts about the case? So some biographical information. Who was Thomas Overbury and how had he come to be at the court of James VI and I? Thomas Overbury was the son of a quite well-known lawyer who later became a judge. And Overbury goes to university, he goes to the Inns of Court, he hangs out the Inns of Court with a lot of the bright lights of the late Elizabethan, early Jacobean literary scene, but he's clearly a man on the make. And what gets him access to the court of the king is a friendship he seems to have forged in Edinburgh at the very end of Elizabeth I's reign with a young man called Robert Carr. 
And Robert Carr was at that point in the entourage of the Earl of Dunbar. He was the son of a laird, a noted supporter of Mary, Queen of Scots. And when in 1603, Dunbar accompanies James VI down to London, when James takes the English throne, Carr comes with him. And a year later, Carr is appointed to the royal bedchamber. And that access to the king that Carr has from 1604, which grows in frequency and intensity over the coming years, is Overbury's entree into high politics. So it's the friendship with Carr that gives him access to other powerful people and makes other powerful people think that he's someone worth knowing. And he's someone worth knowing because, and this is the most important thing, Round about 1607 or so, it becomes clear to everyone that the king has uniquely favoured Carr. Carr has become the dominant favourite young man at the court, and that a lot of power and patronage, money and policy is going to run through him. So Overbury, as a friend of Carr, suddenly becomes a person of interest to a lot of powerful men at the Jacobean court. So given it's a long-standing friendship, why did the relationship between Overbury and Carr turn sour? He's Viscount Rochester by this point. And how did that lead to Overbury being imprisoned in the Tower of London? It's a story of romance. Around about 1611, 1612, we don't know when, Carr begins a dalliance with a married woman, Frances Devereux, the Countess of Essex. And at the beginning, Overbury's happy to go along. There's some evidence that suggests that Overbury writes Carr's love letters for him, a kind of Cyrano de Bergerac mode. But as the relationship becomes more serious, Overbury sees it as a political threat because Francis's birth family, the Howards, sit on the other side of the political divide at court around about 1612, 1613. And as Carr's relationship with Francis deepens, Overbury begins to fear for his political future. And he says some very unwise things, which alienates his friend. At the same time, as this is happening, the king is also growing tired of Overbury. There's probably an element of jealousy in that. The king, in many ways, he imagined his relationship with Carl as, as a kind of tutor and a mentor, as someone creating out of nothing this powerful figure. And Overbury has the same idea, that he's going to be the tutor and mentor of Carl. And there are various political agendas that Overbury's pushing that the king doesn't like. And what brings Overbury down, first of all, is probably that he annoys the king. And the king wants him out of court. The king offers him a pretty nice way out. He offers him an ambassadorship. It's not clear where. Some people say France, which is very nice. Some people say Muscovy, which might be less of a plum position. But Overbury refuses, and the king, whether genuinely outraged or strategically outraged, treats this as contempt, and he orders Overbury put into the tower. Now, Overbury's assuming that it'll be a brief stay, that his friend Carl will use his influence on the king to get him released. But Carl doesn't do that. Carl has another agenda. So Overbury's in the tower in April 1613. The king is angry at him. And what Carl wants to do is to get Overbury essentially to recognize the facts of life, that the relationship with Francis is growing. There's a plot afoot to have Francis divorce her current husband, the Earl of Essex. She will then marry Carr, and that will bring Carr into the orbit of Francis's family, the Howards. And basically what Carr tells Overbury over the course of the summer of 1613 is just agree that this is okay, that you're not going to cause trouble, that you'll allow this to go ahead. And eventually Overbury capitulates and says, all right, we'll do it. And he's still not released. And so at that point, 
We don't know why. Perhaps the king is putting his foot down. Perhaps Carr is also still bitter. But what we do know, what's also been happening while these various plots have been going on, is that Francis, who has been bitterly attacked by Overbury and is resentful of his influence over Carr, resentful of the kind of insults to her honour, has been plotting to find a more permanent solution to the Overbury problem and has been trying to poison him. On the 14th of September, 1613, Overbury dies in the Tower. This is six months after he'd been imprisoned. But his death doesn't provoke a scandal immediately. Can you tell me about the rumours that began to emerge? You may have hinted at one of them already there, including those about King James's involvement, which provoked him to order an investigation. At the time of Overbury's death in September 1613, his passing is generally unlamented. Even among his political allies at court, he was known as an abrasive figure, caustic, arrogant. And there are poems written at the time of his death, which frankly revel his demise. Rumours are spread that he dies of an unmentionable disease, so the French pox or syphilis. It's widely rumoured. His body has to be examined because he dies in a royal prison in the tower. And there's a kind of routine proto-autopsy. The coroner has to take a look at it. And the body is in a fairly disgusting state of decay. He's clearly been seriously ill. Some of the signs on the body might later be interpreted as traces of something dubious. But at the time, it was like he's probably died of this kind of sexually transmitted disease. And in many ways, he's out of the way. And for nearly two years, he's buried. And Carr, he's made the Earl of Somerset in December 1613. He marries Frances after her first marriage is nullified in a kind of embarrassing and prolonged ecclesiastical hearing, but she's free to marry him. They marry 26th of December 1613 in a lavish court wedding. And for about a year, Carr is the most powerful man at the English court and is in close collaboration with Francis's father, the Earl of Suffolk, and her great-uncle, the Earl of Northampton, who have a complete policy agenda that they want to push the king towards that Carr is helping them do. And so Overbury is out of the way. He's forgotten in many ways. And then, this being the Jacobean court, those who felt they'd lost out with this sort of reorientation of the favourite towards the Howards begin to plot to bring him down. And their instrument is another handsome young man. This one, an Englishman called George Villiers. He was introduced to the king in 1614. And by early 1615, it's clear that the king likes George and is beginning to give him office at court. And Ha is understandably very nervous and very angry and confronts the king. And there's a series of blazing rows between the two. There's a remarkable letter that James sends Carr rebuking him for his ingratitude and his behaviour. And throughout most of 1615, there's a kind of seesaw at court It's probable that the king is thinking about, I'm going to balance these different factions. I'm going to keep two favourites with their clusters of political supporters, and I'm not going to allow either of them to think they can wield influence over me. But in that kind of situation, then the revelation about Overbury emerges. So Overbury's ghost suddenly reappears on the scene. And it's long been a mystery exactly how this happens, but it seems that what happens is that the lieutenant of the tower a man called Jervis Elwes, in an interview with the King's Secretary of State, Ralph Winwood, tells Winwood that, yeah, back in 1613, when I first became Lieutenant of the Tower, I discovered a plot to murder Overbury, but I stopped it from happening. And Winwood sits on this information for a while. 
and then decides in the early autumn of 1615 that it's probably time to tell the king about this. And this is clearly a move by Wimwood to try and tilt that balance back towards George Villiers' group and the men who are trying to bring Carr down. And he tells the king that the lieutenant of the towers claimed there was a poisoning plot to kill Overbury. And again, in another interesting moment, the king decides that he's going to take this seriously. And he asks Wimwood to talk to Elwes again. And this time, Elwes starts humming and hawing and says, well, I'm not entirely sure I stopped the plot. And this opens the floodgates. And the king essentially asks a group of lawyers and administrators at the court to conduct an investigation. And fairly soon, a whole cast of characters have been hauled in front of the king's judges and are beginning to name names. And very quickly, they name Robert Carr and his wife as instruments behind the plot. Now, on what grounds were they accused? It's difficult to fully separate what they may have done with the stories and the prosecution case about what they did. There's kind of two things we can think about. One is, what do we think they actually did? And then what was the argument made at the time? and the evidence produced. And the case is easy to reconstruct against the Countess Frances Howard. And the case against her is essentially that she wanted Overbury dead. And through a number of intermediaries, she helped smuggle into the tower, send to the tower a whole array of poisoned goodies, tarts and jellies, which looked like gifts for the prisoner, but were laced with arsenic and rosicler and other kind of poisonous substances. Francis was also alleged to have worked with her close friend, a woman called Anne Turner, to get access to poison suppliers. Anne Turner was the widow of a London physician and thus presumably had knowledge in the sort of chemistry supply side of London apothecaries. And the goal originally was that these poisons would be smuggled over his keeper, a man called Richard Weston, would make sure he ate the pies and jellies. But this initial attempt at poisoning apparently didn't work. Overbury got ill. There's some vivid descriptions of the symptoms of poisoning, but he didn't die. And eventually, and the evidence here is from Richard Weston, the keeper, eventually they decided that they were going to skip lacing the jellies and the pies, and they bribed an apothecary's apprentice to come in and deliver an enema in disguise of medical treatment. And this enema contained mercury sublimate or another poison, and this finished the job. That's the case there. The case against Robert Carr is a lot weaker. And that case is mostly hinged on the fact that his behaviour in 1613 is suspicious. He engineers Overbury's imprisonment. The king's kind of nicely written out of this particular story. It's uh, Carr tricking his old friend into offending the king, then keeping him in the prison while his wife killed him. And there are various rumours about all kinds of explosive political secrets that Overbury had about Carr that Carr wanted to keep silent. But again, the evidence of a direct involvement in the murder for Carr is very weak. And his trial lasts longer than any of the trials. He doesn't have a defence lawyer, but he defends himself and he never confesses. Unlike his wife, when Frances Howard eventually comes to court, put on trial in May 1616, she confesses to having done it. So there were reasons for her to confess. It would save her a date with the hangman. But at the same time, it seems pretty good evidence that she had at least thought she was trying to kill Overbury, even if, given all the sort of nasty diseases going around the Tower of London, he might have actually died of something else. So to clarify, what is the outcome of the trial then? Frances Howard has confessed. What happens to Anne Turner and what happens to Carr? 
in the first wave of trials in the autumn of 1615, the plebeian characters mostly get put on trial. The keeper, Richard Weston, is tried first. He has to be tried first because he's the principal. Everyone else is technically his accessory in the murder. He's tried, convicted, executed. Ann Turner, tried, convicted, executed. Jervis Elwes, the lieutenant of the tower, tried, convicted, executed. The most colourful of the criminals, a man called James Franklin, who probably supplied poisons, was tried, convicted, executed. There was an attempt to put a quite senior courtier called Thomas Monson on trial. They tried to do it twice. They started proceedings and then shut up shop very quickly. And eventually Monson is never put on trial. So all this happens in October, November, early December, 1615. And then there's a gap. And during that gap, there's a lot of political maneuvering at court and a lot of wondering about how on earth they're going to stage the trial of the king's former favorite and his wife, who's from one of the most powerful, oldest aristocratic families in the country. And there's a lot of evidence of them being very careful about how they're going to do it, what they're going to say, what they're not going to say. But eventually they're put on trial in May 1616 in Westminster Hall. They're tried by a jury of their peers. So it's essentially the House of Lords. And they're both convicted. Francis after confessing, Carr after adamantly insisting on his innocence. Two months later, she gets a royal pardon. He doesn't get pardoned until 1624, but they are kept in the Tower of London. Fairly nice conditions through 1622 when they're released. So the minor characters, the less powerful characters, hang, and the two powerful aristocrats live. But the furore surrounding the Overbury affair was not quieted down by the trial or the executions. I imagine much to James's frustration. Can you give some idea of the sort of literature that was being published to help us understand the nature of 17th century media? Yeah. One of the really interesting things about the Overbury affair is that it is probably one of the first big 17th century media scandals. And it's a great opportunity to see how the media works and how it covers an explosive political event. So there are a number of things to stress. First of all, all the trials are public. They're open. They're well attended. They're attended by people who go to take notes, transcripts to circulate. And there's a lot of talk, particularly in London, about what's going on. They're the talk of the town for several months, these trials. The executions are also big public events with large crowds of witnesses. So there are two types of reporting on the scandal that get circulated. At one level, there's probably about 15, 16, 17, some of them are lost, printed books and pamphlets which discuss the case. Most of these are fairly tame in that they're presented in classic early 17th century crime literature format, which is, here are some wicked crimes, but they've been thankfully brought to light by royal justice, avenged by royal justice. And now hopefully these repentant criminals might find forgiveness in the arms of God. And these printed pamphlets, none of which can really appear without official approval, also mostly steer clear of talking anything about the Earl of Somerset and wife, about Carr and Francis. That's too dangerous. They focus on the lowborn criminals and they tell stories about their paths to murder. And many of them are highly moralized stories of a corrupt youth with minor vices. Sir Jervis Elwes is this wonderful 
supposed confession in which he finds the root of his path to the gallows in his how does he put it? It's essentially his prideful vanity in his handwriting, that he loved the fact that he could write a good script. And this was opening his soul to the sort of the sin of pride. And this led him down a cascading series of greater and greater sins until he's conniving in murder. And Turner, famously, the stories told about her all starts with her obsession with fashion and invention of a new style of rough for women in which they'll be starched and dyed yellow to set off the kind of pale complexions that were in fashion. And again, this is literature which explain how this obsession with surface and with artifice, again, is a symptom of this deep-lying sin of pride that once set into motion is almost inevitably going to lead her down a path into lust and adultery and witchcraft and murder. So there's a lot of this literature out there, and it's making the scandal into a huge effect. It's not just a murder scandal. It's about outrageous fashions. It's about arrogance and ambition and witchcraft and lust. And calligraphy. Don't forget that one. And that leads you into the yes. path of murder. Indeed. So just be careful next time you get your fountain pen out and looking admiringly at the script. So this stuff is more or less licit. It's officially published. It steers clear from attacking the aristocrats. It steers clear from drawing too many overt connections between what's been going on at court and the king's stewardship of the court and of the realm. However, there's also a thriving underground media system. You see it in the 16th century, the beginnings of it, but the early 17th century sees it accelerate in scope and it sees it become richer, more intensive, more wider spread. And these underground media essentially avoid the censorship system, so they don't even bother trying to get it printed. So this media is usually circulated in handwritten copies. Not all of them as neatly written as Jervis Elvis's, I imagine. And it includes everything from detailed transcripts of the court proceedings to scabrous, libelous verse attacking usually the two main aristocratic protagonists. Newsletters are also circulating information about the scandal. These are often things that if you've got a relative or a friend who's in London picking up news from the chatter in the streets or outside the court, they'd be expected to write regular letters home to relatives in the countryside describing the latest news. And a lot of these letters include stories of rumours and gossip and some of the more kind of pointed political criticism of what's going on. So there's a lot of material circulating in manuscript and being devoured across the country. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I was struck reading your book by what you've alluded to there in part, the sort of variety of messages in the contemporary literature about James and his court and those convicted for murder. The literature on Anne Turner, some of it's presenting her as a victim of the excesses and corruptions of the court, as if she's been groomed by a manipulative Francis Howard for her ends. Other literature sets her out as a popish plotter determined to bring down a Protestant king. Can you explain a little bit more about these sort of ideas and themes that have emerged from your analysis of the literature? I suppose I'm asking, what's the political meaning or meanings of the literature? Yeah, I think the main thing is what you just said, that what's striking about it is the kind of multiplicity of meanings. There are many stories told about this scandal. There's a story that the authorities want to tell, and it's the story that's picked up in particular in the sort of speeches given during the trials by the king's judges. And mostly that story is a story of royal justice in action, that the king is shocked to find out that this has been happening, even that people close to him were involved in such heinous crimes. But the king, as soon as he figured out what was going on, and again, there's a lot of stress that the king, through almost kind of supernatural inspiration, understood what was at the heart of this conspiracy with just the beginning of the information that was leaked to him. And so the trials are presented as the king has unearthed this crime. He's brought it to light. He will try it. He will then impose justice. And what justice means is that the guilty should die, but that the king should take care that they have an opportunity to repent and perhaps find a way to be saved. And that's the kind of version that the court is putting out. And you can pick that up, particularly in the printed material. So that's one version of the story. But then there are lots of small versions, little mini stories about some of the characters involved and why it is they committed this terrible crime of murder. In particular, the stories told about Robert Carr and Francis Howard. There's a kind of male story. There's a kind of female story, a story of kind of male political corruption, a story of female political corruption. And the stories told about Francis Howard are essentially stories about a woman who's subverted all the norms of patriarchally defined womanhood. 
She's depicted as lustful, adulterous, tired of one husband. She adulterously pursues Carr as her lover. So overpowering is her lust that she resorts to witchcraft to create potions that will render her first husband impotent and get her a nullity for her marriage and that will allow her to control her second husband. When she is angered by Overbury, her kind of feminine irrationality leads her to plot his death and then she resorts to similar techniques to charms and spells and poisons. And so there's an image there of kind of gender disorder the stories told about Tara are interesting. They're stories about the ways in which kind of the normal political way of things has been upended or subverted by the rise to immense power and authority of someone who lacks both the blood, so the aristocratic background, and the virtue to appropriately and effectively wield any kind of political responsibility. And so the master sin for Robert Carr in some of these writings is his sin of ambition that he's a low-born man, and they tend to exaggerate the obscurity of his birth. The fact that he's Scottish allows these mostly English commentators to assume that even the son of a Scottish laird is mean and base. But to the images of Carr having this man of ambition, and as he crawls up the kind of rungs of power at court, he's, according to these stories, perfectly willing to engage in dishonourable behaviour. His betrayal of Overbury is often read as the betrayal of the virtuous courtier. Overbury, now long dead, everyone forgets how nasty he was. He's now the perfect virtuous courtier who's betrayed by his friend. And that kind of betrayal of masculine friendship is particularly unnerving. But what makes the stories about Carr problematic politically is that, particularly in the libelous poetry, Someone has got to ask the question, if this man is socially obscure, if he has no particular political talents or virtue, how does he end up the most powerful man at court? That ultimately is a question to be asked of the king. And the answers you get in some of the libelous poems tread very carefully around the kind of suspicion that there's a sexual relationship between the king and his favourite but come very close to saying that. There's a libel which says that Carr was promoted for his fair face, or that his face set the king afire and caused the king to lose his political judgment. So there is a general reluctance to implicate the king directly, but often when they're talking about Carr's rise, they have to figure out what's the king's responsibility here. And so at the same time as the king is being depicted by his judges as this agent of righteous justice, there's this countercurrent of anxiety about what's the king's responsibility for the rise of this man who turns out to be a murderer? What kind of king is it who allows women to run around the court embarrassing other men, committing adultery, dabbling in witchcraft? What does it tell us about the king's role as a kind of the patriarchal head of the nation? And the king himself had written earlier that one measure of a king's moral fiber is the morality of his court. And so as these stories get told about the courtiers, and they don't explicitly talk about the king, they're raising all these kind of implicit questions about the responsibility of the king for the misdeeds of his courtiers. Given that there is that kind of implicit anti-monarchy, or at least anti-court vibe <laughs> to the literature and circulation, do we know if James and his counsellors tried to put a stop to this bad PR? They don't seem to have made overt attempts. I think if you the kind of person who wrote and circulated and consumed this kind of material, it was good for you that the state really had no means of quashing the circulation. 
Historians, it's annoying because if they'd arrested a lot of people, we'd know a lot more about who wrote this stuff and how it got circulated. I think that there was a sense that they could manage the scandal through the public medium of the trials and the executions, which had a very clear message. And clearly, when they were leading up to the trial of Carr and Francis Howard in the spring of 1616, they were thinking far more strategically about the messages that would come out in that trial and about what they wanted to avoid, particularly Carr saying. There was concerns that Carr might just spill secrets. He'd been at the heart of royal governance for a long time. He knew where all the bodies were hit at the early Stuart court. And so there was concerns about managing that. But there's no overt evidence of attempts to interfere with stuff in the press, so preventing things being published. And there's no evidence of a kind of overt policing attempt to try and deal with the manuscript material that's circulating widely. So two questions coming from that then. One, I'd like to know in the end whether you think that Francis Howard was guilty. And two, were Francis and Robert not executed, in part because they perhaps had things to spill? Maybe their silence was bought. Well, Francis's guilt, the preponderance of the evidence would suggest yes. Probably a canny lawyer might have made the case that they actually know there was no concrete evidence of what Overby died of. But she confesses all the evidence about the instruments, the sort of the people they hire essentially to do the dirty work, lead back to her. Yeah, in terms of the pardon, it's clear that the decision to spare them is made probably before the trials happen that it's a lot easier to spare Francis because she confessed. And the show of repentance almost immediately changes her image from the wicked woman to the repentant. And it was relatively easy to make the case that mercy might be shown. Silencing them, there was speculation. There was clearly an unease among some contemporaries about the fact that the Somersets were spared. This went against the rhetoric that the King's judges had been preaching since the autumn previously, which is that murder is a heinous crime. The blood of the innocent calls to God for vengeance. The king is God's agent of justice on earth. The king will deliver divine justice. And famously, Richard Weston makes a remark about, I hope you're making a net that will catch the big fishes as well as the small fish. He knows that he's a nobody in this and that there are powerful political interests at work. And so there is a real issue about the sparing of the Somersets, which contemporaries are aware of. And it somewhat undercuts the royal image of what's going on, because this is, frankly, all the kind of religious arguments they use about justice and murder and punishment. All this stuff implies that everyone involved in the murder had to pay the same price. So there is speculation, and some of that speculation about what it means, pardon means, what the sparing means, find its way into print by the late 1640s, early 1650s in a very different political world where it's a lot safer to talk about the misdeeds of monarchy. There's theories. Who was the real criminal? There were theories that I think you can find in the 1650s that James may have been involved in over his murder. It's a theory that's picked up again in the 19th century by a lawyer called Andrew Amos, who wrote a kind of big book about the Overby scandal in which he decides that James, in fact, orders Overbury's murder and that R and Francis Howard become scapegoats in a certain way, but their cooperation means that they will live. So I think the main thing we can say is that the sparing of the Somersets is problematic. 
it raises questions rather than closing them down. It angers certain people and it compromises the story that the King's judges had wanted to tell, a story that had distanced James from the scandal. And this ended up re-implicating him, making it a lot harder to see him as a kind of victim of his courteous misdeeds, less easy to see him as a kind of morally upright administrator of divine justice. Given that James has been re-implicated by sparing them, in the short term, does he cleanse the court and rebuild his reputation? In the very, very short term. Very quickly, a lot of the same issue recur. Politically speaking, the one thing that the Overview scandal does do is that it installs George Villiers as the supreme and uncontested favourite at court. And that fact shapes the next dozen years of English history. He becomes the Duke of Buckingham. He is quite remarkably able to move from James I's side to Charles I's side. And the installation of Buckingham as royal favourite is of massive political importance. In terms of King's reputation and the court's reputation, I think what's important is that a lot of the scandalous behaviour that is unearthed by the Overbury prosecution unorthodox religious leanings, dabblings in witchcraft, rampant ambition, dissimulation, corruption, even the use of kind of poison as a political weapon. All of these behaviours become part of a picture of the court that sticks, partly because other courtiers get implicated in similar scandalous behaviours. And Buckingham himself, relatively quickly, certainly by the end of the 16-teens, becomes the topic of underground political attacks that last through the rest of his life and which charge him with a whole range of scandalous behaviours, many of which also being levelled at Carr and Francis Howard. So basically Buckingham is involved in witchcraft, Buckingham is lustful and adulterous, Buckingham is a crypto-Catholic, Buckingham is a man of ambition plucked out of nowhere and climbing the rungs of court without either virtue or blood to sustain him. A lot of these same stories and anxieties get repeated through the 1620s. And so in many ways, the Overbury lesson gets both implicitly remembered every time these new scandals are talked about, and sometimes it's explicitly referenced that people talk back and they're already connecting these two sets of scandalous courtiers together and seeing a continuous pattern. And so I think you can make the argument that this is a real challenge to James I's authority. Some of the things said about James in the early 1620s and his relationship with Buckingham go much further in terms of making overt sexual allegations than conversations about James and Robert Carr. But there's a kind of continuity in which James's image as a wise, disciplined, moral, Protestant monarch is eroded. It becomes possible to question it. And there are political decisions he makes that just add to the problem when he decides that He's not going to go to war against Spain in the late 16-teens, early 1620s. He's going to pursue a marriage alliance with Spain to end war in Europe. In many ways, an entirely admirable strategy, but which looks to many of his subjects as a kind of betrayal of the very essence of what Protestant kingship's about. And the kind of worries about, why is he doing this? Why is he so soft on Popery and the Antichrist? And it's because he's ruled by his favourites. You can look back and see what happened in the Overbury case where crypto-Catholic and Catholic courtiers were implicated in those scandals. 
So a series of stories get told and set into place by the Oberby scandal, which can be reignited, re-triggered by sort of new events. And so it doesn't get forgotten. It doesn't get tucked away. It doesn't mean that the monarchy is doomed or that the king's authority is completely shot, but it's compromised. And that's an interesting process, particularly when we're trying to think over the long term about how the authority of the monarchy gets shaken and compromised in the decades before that authority collapses in the civil wars. You say that it's always being recalled, this Overbury affair. Did James and his heirs ever really recover from it? Can we find connecting threads, however slender, between the scandal and the British civil wars? Yeah, I think we can, but it's a complicated story rather than a kind of simplistic story that massive scandals happened, monarchy is compromised, and then 25 years later, there's a political crisis that leads to the civil war. Partly it's about memory, and partly, as I said earlier, that memory is about the kind of recurrence of scandal, at least through Buckingham's career through 1628, 1629, in which some of these same scandalous tropes get recycled in images of the court. It's also a story about kind of the continued circulation of writings about the Overbury Fair. So these manuscript verse libels, for instance, are collected in miscellanies and commonplace books by readers across the country. And they continue to circulate, to be borrowed, copied, written down, shared through the 1630s. We know that people were copying down poems about Robert Carr and Francis Howard long after the overt political sell-by date. So the way that these materials circulate guarantees them a kind of long line. So there's a connection there. The other way I think you can look at connection is that you can make the argument that the Overbury affair both causes and exposes certain political dynamics or contradictions, which continue to be exposed and stretched and reworked over the next couple of decades. So the example that when I was working on this particularly struck me was the question of what contemporary Protestants would have called popery, so Catholicism, false religion. And the Overbury Fair has a number of interesting Catholic elements in it. Frances Howard's public Catholic. Many in her family are Catholic or crypto-Catholic. And that was part of the political dynamic at court. It's one of the reasons that Overbury, for instance, was very unnerved by the prospect of his friend Robert Carr getting involved with the Howard family. And during the prosecution of the case, a story emerges and then peaks and then fades, which turns the scandal into something even more disturbing than it was originally. And this is a story essentially says that Overbury's death was part of a pattern and that there was a massive Catholic plot at work, organized, financed by the Spanish and run at court by Robert Carr and by his Howard relatives. Begins as a rumor, judges allude to it in the trial. The story went that the first victim here was James I's eldest son, Henry, who died in November 1612 at a very young age and whose death was profoundly upsetting to many and triggered a few sort of speculations about what had happened, including rumours of poison. But now the story that started circulating in the autumn of 1615 is that Henry was the first victim, Overbury was the next, 
And the plan was that Carr would orchestrate the mass poisoning of the remainder of the royal family. And in its most elaborate version, this rumor, which is circulated in reports and newsletters, has that the Earl of Somerset and his wife, so Carr and Francis Howard, were expecting a child when they were arrested. In fact, that child was born while they were in arrest, a daughter called Anne. But the rumor was that there was no child. Pregnancy was being faked. But there would be a christening for a changeling child smuggled in. And at this christening, a whole bunch of the ovary murder characters would cater the event and all the foods would be laced with poison. But the poison would be slow acting. This is one of the things that contemporaries loved about poison talk is that poison was magical. You could design any poison to do anything. So the poison would be delivered at the christening, but wouldn't start working for several months. But at the christening, the king's wife, Prince Charles, all the leading Protestant aristocrats of the nation would be poisoned. And Edward Cook, one of the king's judges who gets wind of this, coins his own little phrase. He calls this the powder poison. So it's just like the gunpowder plot of 1605, an attempt by the Catholics to wipe out the Stuart dynasty. And the plot talk mentioned that once everyone died off, Robert Carr would be the Spanish puppet king in England and Scotland. So it's an over-the-top conspiracy theory, but it has a kind of plausibility to it. People don't just laugh it off. It makes sense because there's Catholics involved. Poisoning, yeah, it's the thing that Catholics do. It makes sense. Francis' great-uncle, the Earl of Northampton, yeah, Catholic, probably. And so there was a lot of kind of smoke around this, which looked popish or crypto-popish. So it became easy to imagine this kind of Protestant nightmare of Catholic plotting. And so for a while, this rumor runs with it. And for a while, the king's judges think, oh, yeah, this adds to our picture, because if this is like the gunpowder plots, another example of wicked Catholics trying to kill our staunchly Protestant king and God once again intervening to thwart their wickedness. And there's a point in which James looks like, again, he's reinvested with kind of Protestant charisma by the fact that Catholics are out to kill him. But in the short term, this doesn't stick. What it looks like is a lesson in how deeply corrupted the king's court is by Catholic individuals, Catholic interests. And so there's a story that historians like to tell about the origins of the Civil War, which is that anti-Catholicism is embedded in English Protestant culture. But it's only when anti-Catholicism gets turned against the court that it becomes politically explosive. And that's clearly happened by 1640-41, that Charles I's regime is implicated in a popish plot. But we can see the ease with which that can happen in the Overbury affair, the ease with which this kind of anxiety about Catholic infiltration, the ease about anxiety with which bad actors can get access to believers of power and to the king's person, and how easily they could infiltrate the court with a Catholic political agenda, whether that's arbitrary taxation or marriage alliance with Spain or whatever. And the Overbury affair, it's the first big case where a story about a political popish plot is centred inside the court, not outside it. And that's a very kind of dangerous sign of the volatility of kind of early Stuart political culture. Thank you so much for that. It was an amazing explanation of a complicated case and its implications. And lest anyone think that this is only happening 400 years ago, then they just need to look at what's happening in the country in which you live over the coming year, and we shall see how conspiracies can still be rather over the top and at the centre of politics, I think. Indeed, yeah. It's odd to be working this stuff, thinking it's safely dead and buried, and then suddenly you're back in the heart of kind of conspiratorial thinking, but obviously in a very different media universe. 
it's always good to remember that the 17th century is still relevant. <laughs> Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and research. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Where can you hear about the history of a lifetime? The Times has a new podcast about the lives that define the age we live in. Each week, through the obits pages of The Times, we bring you the stories of scientists, politicians, pop stars, athletes, and many more. What they did in their lives, why they did it, and how they did it. Your history, available wherever you find your podcasts. 